This is Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. In 2003, Darko Milicic was the second pick in the NBA draft, following behind LeBron James. But today, Darko's an apple farmer, sitting on 125 acres in Serbia. He doesn't dwell on the past. In fact, he readily uses the word bust to describe his NBA career. Instead, he dreams of a future, and that future involves a field of cherries. In today's episode, Sam Borden explains why Darko Milicic doesn't fit with the familiar narratives about athletes, success, and failure. Through nine seasons, six teams, and more than $52 million in contracts for a player who says, by the end, he hated basketball. But instead of seeing unfulfilled potential or talent squandered, Darko Milicic is a man at peace with his life and his career. And after today's story, join me for an interview with Sam where we talk about horse punching, of all things. And now, here's our story, Finding Darko, written and read by Sam Borden. Finding Darko. The world is quick to label Darko Milicic an NBA bust, but here are 10 reasons he is an utter success. Number one, he doesn't mind talking about being a total failure. Darko Milicic uses the word bust a lot, which is surprising. I thought he might avoid it, or at least make a sour face when it comes up, but he doesn't stumble over it, doesn't stutter. It doesn't catch in his throat like phlegm. No, Darko is frontal. He's blunt. At seven feet tall and approaching 300 pounds, he's roughly the size of a garage door. But within the first 10 minutes of meeting me, he uses the word bust a half dozen times in a variety of ironic ways. This isn't just about how I'm a huge bust, right? He jokes about being memorably dreadful, bringing up the 2003 NBA draft when he was the second pick, right ahead of Carmelo Anthony, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade, and right behind LeBron James. He pretends to be talking to those players, raising his hand in the air and telling them that, Statistically, someone from the group is bound to be a nightmare, so fine. You guys be the best, and I'll be the historical smudge mark. Then he belly laughs. During our interview, which runs nearly three hours, he peppers the conversation with bust, occasionally breaking it up with appropriate synonyms like disaster. At one point, he says bust three times in about 15 seconds and punctuates the description of his own professional basketball career by stamping an imaginary label, presumably one saying bust, on his own forehead. The whole thing feels like part performance art, part therapy. The obvious question then, was he really that bad? The short answer, yeah, pretty much. There are lots of ways to quantify how much of a disappointment Darko was in the NBA, starting with the fact he averaged six points per game while making around $52 million. The simplest way to understand it, though, is this. BasketballReference.com has a feature where it combines all of a player's statistics and lists other players who had careers similar to his. For LeBron, the similar players include all-time greats, such as Julius Irving, Larry Bird, and Charles Barkley. For Bosch, the list has Hall of Famers, such as Dominique Wilkins and Alex English. Wade compares to Clyde Drexler and Walt Frazier. Darko? His closest match is to someone named Lee Nalen, followed by Lou Amundsen and Lorenzo Williams. 
and with all respect to those gentlemen, let's just say that none of them was drafted second and had the expectations of an entire country on his shoulders. Two weren't even drafted at all. Yet Darko seems fine with all that, fine with being one of the most famous scrubs in the history of the league. Somehow he's good with it. And so one afternoon this spring, when we are driving in Novi Sad, which is Darko's hometown in Serbia, I casually mention that I did not expect him to be so at ease with the calamitous quality of his career. What did you expect? Darko asks. I hesitate. I'm trying to figure out how to say unbridled disgrace in a way that isn't completely offensive. You know, I once wrote a story about Frederick Weiss, I say, bringing up another basketball catastrophe from Europe, this one French instead of Serbian, who was drafted by the New York Knicks in 1999, but never played a game for them. Darko's face perks up. He remembers Weiss. What was he like? He was sad and depressed, I say. He had a lot of other issues going on, too, with his wife and his son, but he still seemed pretty angry about how everything turned out, and he was angry at life, and I guess it was under the surface angry, but angry. I'm babbling. Actually, Vice tried to kill himself once, I blurt out. Darko doesn't flinch. Really? Yeah. We ride in silence for a minute. There aren't many stoplights here, and the road is a little bumpy, and the radio is on with Serbian music playing low. It seems as if maybe I jabbered the conversation into submission. But then, abruptly, Darko says, That's weird, you know, about Weiss, because I kind of feel like old Darko died. Like when I think about myself, or myself when I was playing, I feel like I'm sort of thinking about someone who is dead. Number two, he no longer believes that because of a combination of peer pressure and societal customs, he should lie about his dream. Darko was 18 when the Detroit Pistons drafted him. Before that, he lived in Serbia during the 1990s, which meant he saw his country and his father, who was a soldier, fight in several wars in the Balkan region. He also lived through NATO bombings that decimated his city, forcing him and his parents and his sister to spend days on end in their basement, listening to the whooshes and thumps of explosions above. Once, during the war in Bosnia in the early 90s, as his family watched television, there was a news report about how 15 or 20 Serbian soldiers were killed that day. One of the names the newscaster read was Milorad Milicic. Darko, who wasn't even 10 yet, remembers looking up and seeing a picture of his dad on the screen. Why is daddy on the TV, he asked his mother. His mother didn't answer. She just started crying, so Darko cried too. But then about five minutes later, the newscaster said it was a mistake. Some of the names were wrong. I'll never forget what that felt like, Darko says. All of a sudden he was gone. All of a sudden he wasn't. Millerod came home. And, among other things, he taught Darko how to play basketball, showing him shooting techniques on a hoop just down the hill from the house. It wasn't because either father or son had a particular love for the game, though. It was mostly biology. My father taught me because there were people from the village who said, You're tall. Why not try? Darko shrugs. I wasn't the one that asked to play basketball. Still, basketball turned out to be something he was good at. And because of family encouragement and the same kind of teenage inertia that makes kids stick with the tuba for six years, even though they're only sort of interested in music, Darko kept doing it. He moved to Hemel Farm, a professional club in the city of Versace, when he was 14. Basketball became his purpose, even if it wasn't his passion. By the time scouts started coming around, Darko saw the NBA as a way out, of financial insecurity, 
of persistent tumult of Serbia more than any kind of childhood fantasy coming true. He liked the game enough. Everyone he met was rooting for him to go. It was all right there in front of him. And who hasn't walked through a door simply because it was open? The problem is that wasn't the narrative we expect from foreign basketball players. We expect them to love the NBA, to have grown up watching it on choppy internet streams or satellite television, to cherish its players and aspire to its trappings. When Yao Ming came to the NBA from China, he made no secret of his long-time adoration of Arvidas Sabonis and Hakeem Olajuwon. More recently, Kristaps Porzingis, a Latvian, made it clear that Dirk Nowitzki was his inspiration, and everyone nodded. So as soon as Darko began to get some attention in the U.S., the expected questions began. Who was your idol? Who did you love to watch? Kevin Garnett, Darko answered. He told everyone that Garnett, a tall power forward with a wingspan wider than a school bus, was his muse. He told local television stations he liked Garnett. He told USA Today he liked Garnett. He told ESPN he liked Garnett. Except he had barely seen Garnett play. I just sort of found him and decided he's the one, Darko says now. It seemed like the player I was supposed to like. Supposed to. That was old Darko's existence, wasn't it? He was tall, so we played basketball. He was good, so we went to Hemel Farm. He got noticed, so we went to America. He needed an idol, so he made one up. He followed the trail wherever it led. There was no hazy image of grandeur in his mind's eye, no sweet moment of make-believe lolling about in his brain. He was dreaming with the lights on. Now that basketball is over, though, it is different. Now he does fantasize about a passion. Now he does have a picture of something that makes him smile. Cherries. See, Darko got into commercial farming after basketball. Some athletes do real estate or clothing. Darko did fruit. Don't be confused. His farm is more dull plantation than old McDonald. He has 125 acres filled with apple trees and exports the apples to Dubai, to Russia, and to countries in Africa. Cherries, though, are his vision. The financial return on cherries is tremendous, Darko says, and the market is wide open. When Darko talks about cherries, his eyes get wide. He gets passionate. He gets animated. I want to make these cherries, he says, during the only moment we are together when he sounds wistful. I think it's time. Number three. His typical evening routine no longer includes damaging his own home. Darko doesn't punch walls anymore. He punches heavy bags occasionally as a way to get exercise, and he once punched a horse in the face. More on that later. But his days of regularly inflicting punishment on the walls around him are over. This is an important change. When Darko was playing in the NBA, well, not exactly playing, he would often return to his apartment after stewing on the bench for yet another game and channel his rage toward the typically thin American sheetrock walls. The worst was in Memphis. Darko's wife, Zorana, who was living with him then, calls that his crisis period. The team was losing, Darko was infuriated, and the walls in that apartment looked like cottage cheese, a mess of bubbly bumps and curds. The sequence was familiar. He would come in, hammer on the walls, and go to sleep. In most cities, he came to know the local contractors who could run over, throw some putty up, and do a quick cover-up job with whatever paint they had handy. You know you have exactly white, and then the other white, and then gray, Darko says of his patchy walls? That was my house. Darko had always had outbursts, 
he called them going crazy. Mile Illich, who met Darko when they were both teenagers, says sometimes Darko was just inexplicably petulant. He would stop practicing or not want to do a drill or not think he should have to help clean up the gym, and the coach would punish the rest of the team. At those moments, you simply start hating him because you have to suffer for it, Illich says. It would last for five or ten minutes, and then he would be a totally normal character. By the time Darko reached the NBA, however, his emotions were more complex. At first, he was just a teenager, an ocean away from home, and a culture he didn't understand. For example, Darko would go home to shower after practices or games instead of staying in the locker room to clean up. He didn't realize that in America, the players all showered together. So I had to teach Darko, says Chauncey Billups, who played in Detroit from 2002 to 2008. Like, no, when we're done playing, when we're done practicing, you put your towel on and you go get in the shower. That's what we do here. It wasn't long, though, before the naivete melted to anger. Pistons coach Larry Brown didn't have a lot of interest in playing Darko because Detroit had received the number two pick in a trade and had a slew of skilled veterans at the time. Also, when Brown did play Darko, he wanted him to work near the rim instead of passing and shooting from the outside as Darko preferred. Darko quickly plunged into a near-perpetual pout. There was wall punching. There was also drinking, and Darko began showing up to practice, still tipsy after an overnight bender. I just wouldn't sleep, he says. It was classic high school behavior. He couldn't be the star, so he decided to be the bad boy rebel. I don't have any regrets about how we treated Darko, Brown says now. I have regrets that he couldn't have been more mature and patient. The same thing happened in Orlando, and with Memphis, too, where Darko was so unhappy that he went off on a rant against the referees after an international game that was immortalized on YouTube. Darko used such graphic profanity, even the reporters interviewing him tried to calm him down. Everywhere I went, it was just the littlest thing that would set me off, and I'd flip, Darko says. You know the craziest thing? All that wall punching, and the two times he ever broke his hand came when he was actually on the court. In Memphis, he cracked a bone in his right hand against Indiana. And in his first season, when Detroit was on the verge of winning the NBA championship over the Lakers, Brown finally put Darko in, an opponent smacked him while he was shooting a jump shot, and his hand shattered. I was trying to show Larry Brown my hand, because my hand was like shaking, Darko says. He just pushed me back in the game. Darko rolls his eyes when he talks about it now. He hasn't punched a wall in a while, he says. And Zorana says the same. Darko jokes that the reason is because Serbian houses are made from masonry, with textured wallpaper stuck on top of stone. The walls in Serbia don't have any give. Zorana thinks removing the intensity of basketball from Darko's life was the key, like taking the lighter out of a gas grill. Now, she says, the sequence at night is this. Darko comes in, has dinner with the family, and watches television before sometimes dozing off on the couch. It also isn't basketball that Darko watches. He actually does not follow the NBA much at all, he says, and he isn't kidding. I first meet Darko in June, just days after the Golden State Warriors took a 2-0 lead on the Cleveland Cavaliers, featuring LeBron in the NBA Finals. Anyone with even a passing interest in the sport knows about the battles between LeBron and Steph Curry. But when I ask Darko about the series, he looks genuinely surprised. We are sitting at his farm, and Darko glances at the fields. The finals are going on now, he asks. Who's winning? 
Number four, he knew when to quit. On November 17, 2012, the Celtics had a game against the Toronto Raptors. That day, as the players were filtering into the locker room, Darko knocked on Doc Rivers' office door. Like most of Darko's coaches before him, Rivers did not see Darko playing a significant role on his team. To that point, through nine games, Darko had played a total of five minutes. But Rivers liked Darko, liked having him in practice. So he welcomed Darko into his office and listened as Darko told him he had come to say goodbye. In the center position, if something goes bad for the team, you have Jason Collins, you have Fab Mello, Darko said. So I'm packed and going home. Darko recalls Rivers being stunned. Darko, what are you talking about? Where are you going? You're going to play tonight. Darko was unbowed. Doc, that's it. I'm not playing tonight. I'm not playing ever again. Thank you guys for trying. It didn't go well. I'm out. When Darko went into the locker room to tell his teammates, several didn't seem to understand. He was leaving? Like, for good? For good, he told them. It was over. Publicly, the Celtics said Darko had asked for his release so he could return home to be with his mother, who was sick. In truth, Darko's mother had a minor illness and recovered just fine, and Darko had been planning his exit for a while. He first thought about leaving in Orlando, if he's being honest, when they didn't sign him to a contract extension. But Memphis gave him a $21 million contract because the Grizzlies thought they could fix him. Then, when that didn't work out, he nearly left again. But the Timberwolves, even after he advised Minnesota not to trade for him, dealt for him anyway and offered a $20 million contract, convinced that they, in fact, were the ones who could bring out the talent everyone was so sure Darko possessed. They weren't. Finally, Boston took its shot, stepping forward like the last in a line of children taking swings at an empty piñata. Everybody was trying to find a way to keep me, Darko says. Leaving, then, even in the way that he did, was the moment when he took back control. Is Darko a quitter? It seems too easy a label. In Darko's mind, Boston was simply the time when he decided to stop thinking everything was going to suddenly change. There was some measure of survival in it, too. Over nine years, the water had risen to Darko's chin so many times, it was easy to understand why he felt certain he was about to drown. I was so lost, Darko says. I really came to hate basketball, you know? I just wanted to come back home and live another life. Zorana had packed everything, and the family flew back to Serbia the day after Darko's conversation with Rivers. For a while, he felt relief. Then he felt itchy and idle. Then he partied. Then he toyed with playing again, almost making a comeback with a Serbian team. Then he had a much-publicized midlife crisis, which is not unreasonable at age 29 when you turn professional at age 14, during which he became a kickboxer. He fought once. On the night of the bout, Darko stepped on the scale for the pre-fight weigh-in and broke it. Literally broke it. It took us one hour to find another scale, says Darko Papivoda, the promoter of the fight. Darko stepped on that scale, and that scale also broke. At that point, Papivoda just asked Darko how much he weighed. Over 300 pounds, Darko sheepishly said. Things did not improve in the ring. Darko had a strong knee, but says he forgot to use it. He had a good left-high kick, but kicked primarily with his right. I mean, I want to kill him, but I don't know how, Darko says. 
His opponent, who was much smaller, did know how. He wailed on Darko until Darko's legs were bleeding so badly he couldn't stand up. Darko's family was not really that happy with his decision to fight, he says, and one evening when we are chatting quietly, Zorana describes it to me as stupidly stupid stupid. Her feelings, along with the ease with which Darko was dismantled, led Darko away from another kickboxing engagement and toward a quick second sports retirement. It seemed a wise decision. Instead, he became intrigued by agriculture. A few friends were farmers, and that was appealing, but the element that drew Darko was the idea that he could master it. He was supposed to be a basketball wizard. That hadn't quite worked out. Farming was another chance. Darko quickly became hooked. He traveled Italy to look at famous orchards. He learned about soil and growing patterns and tree heights. He considered other types of fruit. Then, after settling on apples, he reviewed the varieties. The juxtaposition is stark. A former basketball player doesn't know the NBA Finals is even happening, but when I ask how he monitors quality in the orchard, he walks me over to a hedge and delivers a long, winding explanation about the ideal distance each apple should be from the tree trunk. A summary? The closer to the trunk, the better. Darko's passion is real. When an unexpected snowfall damaged about 10 acres of apples this spring, he went out with the workers to try to salvage the crop. And last year, when he walked through the orchard during the first picking season, he experienced the sensation that he says was foreign to him. Pride. I was just really happy, he says. You know, we were picking our apples. Ours. Number five. When he goes drinking now, he uses his hands. Most of the time. In April 2015, Darko and his friends were at a party. There was beer. There was singing. There was lots of shouting and laughing and men raising their arms in the air. All pretty standard. But at one point, Darko got up near the front of the crowd and, shirtless, inserted a bottle into his mouth. He then removed his hand from the side of the bottle and tipped his head backward, as if swallowing an aspirin. He remained in that position until the bottle was empty. It was a remarkable bit of drinking agility, one that was immortalized in a much-watched video on the internet, even though much of the beer ended up on his neck and face and shoulders. Darko then grabbed another beer bottle, but instead of chugging it, leaned over to give gentle sips to the two Chetnik commanders he has tattooed on his torso, essentially pouring beer on his own stomach on purpose. When I mention this video to Darko, he smiles and laughs. Then he says, that was a long time ago. It had been about 27 months. To me, there are two things that stand out from this display. The first is the prominence of Darko's tattoos. The Chetniks were a group of Serbian nationalists during World War II, and history doesn't quite agree on how cooperative or combative they were with the Axis forces during the war. In an effort at clarity, I asked Darko to describe himself politically, like, why does he have those men tattooed on his stomach? And Darko says he's a nationalist, but adds that the label doesn't mean the same thing in Eastern Europe as it might in the United States. Darko's feelings about Serbia are complicated. The wars, the fighting, the instability of his childhood, but could ultimately boil down to this. He says of his country, I love mine and I respect others. It's a big part of the reason he moved back to Serbia instead of remaining in the United States after he had finished playing, like so many other foreign athletes do.
Serbia is his home. The second thing that stands out about the video is how alone Darko looks, despite being in the middle of a crowded party. His face is blank and empty. His eyes are glazed beyond the standard hammered drunk stupor. He is in his own world. And the hands-off-the-bottle thing, while physically extraordinary, is the ultimate solo trick. It requires nothing, not even one's own fingers as company, to accomplish. A few days after I meet Darko, he has a party at his house. It's a cookout in the late afternoon, and his friends bring their wives and children. The kids jump on the trampoline. The men play remarkably shoddy basketball on the half court. Then there's dinner, and Darko, in a Serbian tradition, walks around the table with a bottle of rakia, or fruit brandy, pouring a shot for each guest and standing nearby as the guest enjoys it before moving on to the next person. Darko does not take off his shirt. He does not let go of his glass. He does not water his tattoos. He is never alone. Number six, he kept the cars. In addition to teaching Darko how to shower, Chauncey Billups taught Darko how to drive. It was not always easy. In particular, Darko seemed to have a disagreement with Billups on the appropriate way to proceed from one road to another. I'd say, no, Darko, hold on. You've got to slow down when you're turning, Billups says. He's speeding up when he's turning. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. It was scary. Fortunately, Billups survived. Darko got his driver's license, and shortly thereafter, he began to build a fairly remarkable collection of cars. Over the next nine seasons, Darko spent time with the Pistons, the Orlando Magic, the Memphis Grizzlies, the New York Knicks, the Minnesota Timberwolves, and the Boston Celtics. Thanks to the thick-headedness of a remarkable number of basketball executives and the wonders of the NBA's guaranteed contracts, he earned $52,323,642, and he bought a new car at nearly every stop. Now, walking into the driveway of Darko's mansion in Novi Sad, where $52 million will last about 200 years, Darko says, it's impossible to miss the luxury cars clumped together like Pacassandra. Over here is a Porsche Panamera with Minnesota license plates still on it. Over there is a Range Rover with New York plates. A Mercedes S600 by the turnaround? Tennessee plates from that hot mess of a stay in Memphis. It is not entirely clear why the cars still have American license plates. Darko makes an obscene but funny gesture when asked about it that seems to imply Serbian registration is, in his opinion, optional. But there they are, gleaming symbols of Darko's misadventures in the United States stuck right out in front of his house. Why does he keep them? Part of it might be vestiges of the old superstar lifestyle. And, more likely, part of it is that there aren't many cars that are comfortable for a man so tall. But there is something more, too. Darko moved on quickly from so much of the NBA, even selling his Pistons championship ring and donated the money to charity. The cars, though, he kept. The Ford F-350 truck has a dark green body with a lighter green tarp stretched over the flat bed and oversized rooftop running lights. Darko says the truck isn't running now because it got damaged in a traffic accident involving Darko, a dark road, a sharp turn, fog, and a herd of cows that were not as visible as one might have imagined. Everyone was fine, including the cows. I've had it priced a few times, but they tell me that even a small fix for an American truck like that is thousands, Darko says. They try to rob me. Do you need it? I ask. Darko shakes his head. So why not get rid of it? We are standing about 20 feet from the truck, and Darko gazes over at it. Never, he says. 
He looks back at me as if I'm crazy. Number seven, he didn't go broke. Darko's property in Novi Sad has a giant fence around it. There are three main buildings, the house, the guest house, and the indoor pool. There was also an outdoor pool, a playground, the basketball court, and a covered open-sided lounge space filled with outdoor furniture. The dining room in the guest house, or put another way, the backup dining room, has seating for 18. The basement of the main house is Darko's hunting room, where the mounted heads of everything from deer to elk to bears peer out with hollow eyes. Off the back of the guest house is a weight room that has a squat rack, leg presses, benches, fly machines, and 100-pound dumbbells. There is a fire pit outside. There are 14 bicycles, tricycles, and scooters lined up against the wall. Instead of a typical mudroom, there is an area that looks like a sliver of an NBA locker room with cubbies that wouldn't seem out of place in Madison Square Garden and, on the walls, a giant picture of Darko, dunking, while with the Knicks, as well as a framed Darko jersey from his time with the Timberwolves. I mention all this because it's important to remember that Darko retired in 2012. According to one study from 2009, about 60% of NBA players file for bankruptcy within five years of leaving the league, and Darko, despite his failures while in the United States, is still flush. On the surface, Darko's life is good. He has invested about $8 million into his apple orchard, and growth has been steady. He has about 125 acres now, with an eye on more, plus the cherries. His kids go to a plush private school. Zorana has started her own fashion line and runs a couple of boutiques. Their compound has a staff that helps with laundry and dishes and childcare. But Darko is leery. He feels conflicted about giving his children such a lavish, easy life because he worries that they will take from it the same thing that he took from being a basketball prodigy, arrogance. That is why when Darko's son, Lazar, asks Darko about basketball, Darko's honest. He doesn't tell glory days stories. There aren't many anyways. Instead, he tells Lazar the worst parts. He talks about not playing, about mouthing off to the coaches, about not putting in extra work. He talks about his own mistakes, his foolishness. He talks about blowing his chance, even if he didn't blow his money. I'm not scared to tell them, Darko says one afternoon, but sometimes Lazar gets confused by what he's hearing. When I told him, don't do everything that I did if you want to be good, Darko says, he was like, why? You're my father. Darko shrugs. Yeah, I'm your father, he said to Lazar, but your father made mistakes so you don't have to. Darko shakes his head. You know, he still doesn't really understand, he says but he's going to understand in time. Number eight. He is able to say, this is a funny story, as opposed to viewing it as a metaphor for his entire life. In the middle of Darko's farm is a lake. Darko had it built. It works in combination with a water treatment system that harnesses rainwater and irrigates the orchards. Above the lake is an elevated dock that includes a small but air-conditioned sitting room and porch where Darko can look out over his land and his water. There are 10,000 fish in the lake, and they are mostly carp. Darko bought them and stocked the lake because the poop and the pea are good for the apples, Darko says. The fish are aggressive. When Darko throws food off the dock, there is a frenzy of swimming and flapping and snapping that makes the water look as if the lake also has whirlpool jets, which, to be honest, wouldn't have surprised me. 
One day, Lazar says to Darko that he wants to go fishing. Lazar is adorable, a precocious eight-year-old with a soft face and lanky arms and a small dimple. He has big hands like Darko, but a tiny and determined smile. Sometimes when Darko is talking to someone, Lazar will just come up and lean his entire body weight against Darko's legs, nuzzling against his giant of a father. Darko tells Lazar that fishing is no problem, as there's a boat in the lake. He brings Lazar and his five-year-old sister, Lara, up to the lake. The little brother, Luca, four, stays home. Darko's excited. He sees how the fish react when he throws food in the lake, and he can't wait to see Lazar's face when Lazar catches dozens of fish. Darko and the kids get in the boat. They float away from land. They bait their hooks and drop them into the water. Nothing happens. They move to another part of the lake. Still nothing. Darko can't believe it. There are literally 10,000 fish in the water. He knows because he paid for them. But not one is biting. Daddy, let's go, Lazar says. What? Darko's flummoxed by the entire situation. Let's go, Lazar says again. There are no fish here. Number nine. He accepts responsibility. So, the horse punching story. Once, when Lazar was about five or six, Darko took him riding on a big horse. Horses have forever been part of Darko's family life. His parents had a farm, and there were always animals around. And even now, despite being the size of a small SUV, Darko still likes to ride. He likes that Lazar is interested in something his father enjoys. These days, Darko rides a horse named Aster, who is a 12-year-old really, really big horse that the stable in Novi Sad found for him. Darko finds riding peaceful. But on this day, it was Lazar in the saddle, and as Darko watched by the railing, the horse took off. All was fine, but then the horse began to buck, and Lazar began to tremble a little bit, and suddenly the boy pitched off the side of the saddle, hanging upside down alongside the horse's flank. Darko screamed. One of Lazar's legs was caught in a stirrup. His body shook limply, banging against the horse's flanks. His tiny head dangled near the horse's hooves as the animal galloped. If Lazar fell, he would be trampled. Darko and another man ran out into the ring, shouting. They were able to control the horse after a few seconds, but even once the horse was subdued, Darko found himself quivering. He scooped Lazar up and held him close. Lazar was crying. Darko was so scared for his son and so angry that he turned around and slugged the horse in the face. I checked with Radoslav Bursach, who runs the stable. The horse was fine. When Darko tells this story, though, over a traditional Serbian lunch plate of meats one day, he laughs nervously. I think it is because he knows that none of it, the parenting, the abject fear, the animal violence, sounds particularly good. But Darko tells the story because he sees a lesson. When he was playing basketball, Darko says, he never thought he had done anything wrong. Everything was always someone else's problem, someone else's fault. Larry Brown didn't play him the right way. His teammates didn't realize how much he could help them. The referees screwed him. Now, though, Darko sees things differently. I blame myself, he says of what happened to Lazar and the horse. He shouldn't have let Lazar on that horse in the first place, and he knows that uppercutting the horse afterward was not reasonable either. I didn't train him, Darko says. It's on me. He pauses, eating a sausage, and looking out the window of the restaurant where we are eating. His face changes from stony to soft. 
After that, I asked Lazar if he wanted to ride again, Darko says. I thought he was done. You know what he told me? I want to ride a bigger one. Number 10. A Serbian monk says so. On one of my last days in Novi Sad, I go to the monastery Darko attends, which is tucked into a green nook of the Fruska Gora mountain, about 25 minutes from Darko's house. The Novo Hapovo Monastery is striking. Clusters of deep red roses line a path to the curved entryway. A rising church with a towering cupola shoots above the tree line and into the clouds. The monks know Darko. He comes here often. One of them, Father Joanakije, says that one of the most important elements of Serbian Orthodox ritual is the notion of communal prayer. It is not enough to just perform the liturgy. It must be done together, and afterward, people gather in this tranquil place and talk, not just about religion or faith or scripture, but about life. They share. Darko never leaves early. This is where he comes for reflection and confession and expiation. And each time, he finds himself thinking about something else he should have done differently when he was playing basketball. He relives the moments that feel the worst. You have to talk, Darko says. When you have something inside you that's killing you, it's eating you inside. You have to talk to somebody. That's the only way you're going to take it out. The monks see Darko differently than everyone else. When I ask Father Joanakije what he thinks of Darko as a person, he pauses for a beat or two, then says, a man who has succeeded in life, a man who has achieved his goal. The words sound odd. In all the conversations I've had with people about Darko, including Darko himself, Father Joanakije was the only person to use that kind of language. Everyone else talks about potential lost or wasted, opportunities that weren't quite seized. Darko wasn't ready. Darko wasn't smart. Darko wasn't mature. Darko couldn't handle it. Darko rebelled. Even Darko stamped his hand on his head and said he was a bust. But the monks see none of that. They just see a man who has a wife and children and a business and a comfortable life and a place in the community of his hometown. They see a man who achieves his goal, or at the very least, is trying to right now. So why can't they be right? That evening, during the party at Darko's house, I watch him play basketball with his friends. He laughs and jokes, even when shots clang off the rim. No one remembers the score. In the middle of the game, Darko runs over to the fire pit to make sure his potatoes are cooking properly. He shoots with Lazar while the other players get water. The sun sets. The players move a little slower. Darko dunks, but winces afterward, rubbing his shoulder. Little Luca rides a toy motorcycle around the court. Lazar jumps on the trampoline. Zorana plays with Lara on the slide. The game ends. The men retreat to the patio. Darko checks on the potatoes again. He says, It's a beautiful night, right? And turns on some Serbian music. He pours drinks for everyone and takes one for himself. Then he sits at the head of the table. His friends shout a toast of love for each other and for Serbia. Darko stretches his arms out and sings. The NBA feels far away, and he is not a bust tonight. Not here. The glasses clink, and the basketball rolls off into the grass.
That was Finding Darko by Sam Borden. Sam joins me now in the studio. Thanks for being here, Sam. Yeah, my pleasure. Glad to be here. So why why go chase Darko now? What made this the moment to do the story? You know, I've always been fascinated by the the thin line between success and failure, you know, in life in general. And I think in sports, it's a really hyper-focused line. And so busts uh, or people that are thought of as, you know, big failures has always been sort of fascinating to me. And I had seen a, a short interview that Darko did with a Serbian newspaper that referenced him being a farmer. I saw it like on NBA Reddit, you know, yeah. earlier this year. And... Um, I was just kind of like, wait, you know, in my mind, I thought maybe he was like farming with like animals, like we were going to go find him like milk and cows and stuff. But the more I learned about sort of what he had done with his life and how he had essentially started an entirely new professional existence, it just made it really intriguing to me to go see it firsthand. And uh, when we got there, it was very different than what I had imagined. Mm -hmm. Well, what were you imagining? I mean, you know, like a lot of times there's a narrative that you can construct with any former athlete about whether they go out on top, whether they're a bust, what were you expecting aside from him, perhaps milking cows? Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. There was like two things that that I expected. One was sort of the physical nature of the farm and like, what did that mean? You know, and like in, in the article, I sort of say, you know, it was less old, old McDonald and more like Dole plantation. Cause I was sort of imagining, you know, like, with with horses and cows and sheep and stuff. And it was not like that at all. But then the other thing, to your point, that I imagined would be the case was the sort of typical denial that a lot of these athletes have that a, they weren't as big a bust as everybody thinks they were, or B it wasn't their fault, you know, that, that something happened or somebody did them wrong. And Darko sort of went against both of those, you know, he had this massive commercial farm, not a, not a animal farm. And he was incredibly self-aware and took responsibility for everything that had happened. I mean, to me, that was remarkable, the way that he looked at what had happened to him and said, it was my fault. Do you think, I guess it seems like he took steps to get to that place, though, because as you lay out in the story, obviously he had nine-season career, a lot of teams that felt like they were going to be the ones that, that could change him um, or make him make him work. And, you know, it seems like he pulled the plug, obviously, on his career, but Going from there to being at the place where he's at peace now, from your time with him, sort of how did he make that transition? Yeah, there was definitely a little window in there where he wasn't quite sure what he was doing. That was a period where he was doing a lot of hanging out with his friends and partying. That was a period where he dabbled in kickboxing, right. which, you know, people may have seen <laughs> th things on the Internet about that, where he, he had this one fight and you know, got largely destroyed. Um, you know, the fight was stopped because he was bleeding so much. Um, and I think he said that, you know, he sort of realized that he needed to do something. He considered like real estate. He considered investing in some other businesses. He had a friend who was in farming. And I think that sort of made him realize that like, okay, this could be something and it could be something that I could learn about and really become an expert about, which I think was appealing to him after, you know, he was supposed to have been an expert in basketball and clearly was not. Right, right. So one of the other stories that we've had on here, Seth Wickersham came on and did uh, his story about Grego and another in the pantheon of NBA busts. And uh, it, it seems like one of the things that he figured out through his reporting and talking with other people is that maybe Greg Oden should have never gone into the NBA. Maybe Greg Oden didn't have the disposition or the, or the drive. 
it seems like there might be some elements similar with Darko here. How did you uncover some of that from his past? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought Seth's story was great, and I think that there are some similarities, but there, the difference that I took away was that it seemed to me like uh, Greg Odin had largely physical issues, right? His body, it, you know, part of it obviously was his disposition, but also there was, you know, simple, like, um, physical factors that kept him from having the success that he you know, should have had or everyone expected him to have. With Darko, it was entirely in his head. I think when you look back at that draft, nobody, nobody says they don't understand why he was taken. You know what I mean? Like, he was seven feet tall. He was um, very skilled. He'd done well against older, more talented players in Europe. It, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a reach necessarily for them to take him in that spot, for the Pistons to take him in that spot. It was just he couldn't deal with the idea that he wasn't going to be a star immediately, and it just spiraled down from there. And right. I think for him, it was literally as simple as at 19, he wasn't mature enough to handle that disappointment, and he never was able to get that back. Specifically, I guess one of the things with, with Darko from the piece, you mentioned that in a lot of ways, it seems like he was parroting the things that he thought an NBA player should do. And I guess that was one of the things that I was wondering if is if he maybe just didn't have the disposition for this. It's just that he had the body to be an NBA player. I think there's no question. I think that the reason that he got into basketball to begin with was because he was tall and people said to his dad, hey, your son's tall. He should play basketball. And so that became what he did. And then it, he was good enough. So it became his way out of Serbia. And then he was good enough. So it was his way to the United States, uh, into the NBA. And yeah, I mean, the desire that we imagine professional athletes to have generally clearly did not exist for Darko. I, I think, you know, the thing that I wonder is, is that a requirement? You know, like, is right. it necessary for every athlete to have that? I don't know that that's necessarily true, but I think it was pretty clear that once some kind of adversity hit Darko, he didn't have the desire to get through it. He decided to just go the other direction. Right. Start punching walls. Um, and drinking. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of drinking. Uh, so how much time did you get with him? Tell me a little bit about the reporting. How how much time did you get? And it sounds like you spent some time in this amazing uh, Darko estate, for lack of a yeah, better term. Yeah, yeah. We, we were there for about a week, um, and we spent time with him at the farm and at his uh, compound, I guess. You know, it, it really, it was a remarkable place. Like, it's about 100 yards from where he grew up, and he grew up in a fairly poor house. I mean, you know, the house is still there. And it's like, you know, what you would imagine sort of in a, you know, ramshackle rural environment. And then sort of more towards the top of the hill is this insane, you know, like 50,000 square foot, 100,000 square foot compound that has three buildings. There's an indoor pool. There's an outdoor pool. There's a guest house that has a dining room that seats 20 people. You know, I mean, there's like a gym that looks like something you would see like in a upscale hotel or something like that. Right. So, yeah, we, we spent time there. He's got a trampoline for his kids. Like, he's got a half-court basketball court. He's got a tennis court. Like, there's a lot going on there for sure. Um, and I think, to me, that was just – it was an interesting reminder of the fact that, bust or not, he made $50 million. And in Serbia, that's going to go a long way. Well, that was the thing that was really interesting, and you delved into that in this piece, not just in, in obviously, the estate and in the farm, but also the cars. He still has all the cars. Um, what was your sense for, and, and did you, how much did you know about his, his financial state going into this? Because it seems really remarkable that he's basically held on to so much. I thought that was interesting, especially because, 
you know, he sold his championship ring. Like he, he got rid of a lot of the things that connected him to the United States and to the NBA. But for whatever reason, he kept his cars. At first, I thought maybe it was just that, you know, big cars are hard to come by. You know, I mean, like the massive SUVs that we see in America are not necessarily as commonplace in Europe. But I think it was a little more than that. When I talked to him about it, I really got the sense that it was like, he looked at it almost like a scar, you know, and like at some point, maybe we we don't love that we have scars on our body, but you get used to them and they're there and it's hard to imagine not having them. And so I think like, you know, part of it is certainly that he enjoys driving, you know, a Mercedes as opposed to what he might be able to buy um, in in um, Serbia. But I think a lot of it, too, is that like he looks at the cars and you know, the house as a reminder of the positive side of the NBA that like he did go there and wasn't completely worthless. He went there. He made enough money to be financially secure for the rest of his life, to take care of his family and to be what would be considered a success for people in Serbia. So this is obviously one of the struggles that most writers have to figure out when they're going into a piece is figuring out the tone and figuring out how that jives with the access, what they've seen and, you know, what their expectations were versus the reality how did you land on the tone for this piece? Because there's times, obviously, when it's very blunt about him and the realities that he's faced, but also times when it's just funny, you know, because of the realities of, of the things that he's done. The fact that he broke the scale when he was doing kickboxing. Uh, how how did you figure out the, the right way to manage that in this piece? It was tricky. I think, you know, the last piece I did was about Chapecoense and the Brazilian soccer team and the plane crash that they were in. And that was obviously... That was obviously a different kind of story in terms of the tone that you want to present. This, I guess I always kind of lean towards trying to match the tone of the subject. And I think that Darko's approach to his own life is both straightforward and, you know, matter of fact. Like, you know, like I wrote in the story, like from the minute I met him, he was sort of like, is this only about how I was a bust, you know? Like, and he's using that word, you know? It wasn't like I had to tiptoe around it at all. And he's also mirthful and he's also making fun of himself and he's making fun of everything that happened to him. But he's also contemplative and, you know, introspective. And so trying to find a, that mix, you know, was difficult, but I, I hope that it came through. I'm glad that you said that you found part of it funny because I think he finds part of his life funny. He finds it fairly ridiculous, all the things that happened to him and all the things that have led him to where he is right now. And I did my best to try to represent that in the story. And from a tone perspective, it was very different than Chapecoense, but, but you know, an interesting muscle to try to, to work, for sure. Any guy that, uh, for fun, will try to drink an entire bottle of something without his hands, I think is going to be is going to be a good subject. Uh, you know, he's. He, I think he was showing off the dexterity that everybody imagined <laughs> he was going to have in the low post in the NBA. and. <laughs> Never quite found a place to use. Yeah. And there, obviously, it was uh, much more effective. Maybe Larry Brown would have been happier with that. Certainly, it was impressive. Um, so a couple of scenes that I want to talk about really quickly. The the fishing scene. And as you mentioned, the giant compound there. He's got a lake, a lake that he manufactured. You know, you write, there are literally 10,000 fish in the water he knows because he paid them. He paid for them. Uh, he didn't pay the fish, obviously. Um I really enjoyed that scene, and I wanted to know why you wanted to include that and what that sort of tells us about him and where he's at now. I found it to be, I mean, I found it interesting because I thought it was a, a nice human moment that oftentimes we assume athletes, you know, either, you know, current or retired, live a very different life than regular people do. And in reality, like anybody that's been a parent can relate to that moment where you're like, you spend 
literally, I mean, money, time and money trying to make something good for your kid. And it doesn't happen the way you imagine. And the kid like just sort of glosses over. All right, that's it. You know, this, this, this didn't work. Let's get out of here. You know. And so I, I was, as a father myself, I was sympathetic to that situation. But I also thought that it was remarkable the way that he just sort of presented it as here's what happened. And another thing that I failed at, but he laughed at it. You know, I mean, he he didn't he didn't say woe is me. I can't do anything right. You know, he wasn't depressed. Like I can't even be a dad in the right way. It was just like life, and I thought it was nicely emblematic of the perspective that he has on his existence at this point in time compared to what would have been the case maybe 10 years ago if you know the exact same thing had happened. He might have just been like, the world is against me. Nothing, no, nothing can go right for me. Right. Whereas now, he had a much more you know, reasonable and realistic uh, perspective on it, which I thought was telling. So I want to talk about horse punching and... Uh, I would be, what took you so long? Yeah, I would be remiss if I didn't do that. When did he tell you about this incident with his son, and how did you figure this fits into the story? Did he make those connections? Was that something that you saw and the light bulb went off? Yeah, I mean, I think he brought it up midway through our visit. You know, we would have these meals together in between, you know, shots or just, you know, we'd record, we'd tape him doing something in the morning, and then we'd have go have lunch somewhere. And he, at first he brought it up when we were... Um, at lunch, and I, I think it was because we were talking about the horse and how it was sort of incongruous. Like, I never imagined that he was into riding horses, and he's talking about how, you know, this has been something that he has been into for a little while, you know, and Lazar, his son, has gotten into it. And he just he just told the story. I mean, it was really sort of, you know, to what I was saying before, it was very matter-of-fact. Like, he didn't say it in any particularly meaningful way. Uh, and then I followed up on him, uh, followed up on it with him while we were driving in the car later to sort of be like, you know, what What do you think about how you handled that? I think like some people would be sort of like, you know, offended or, or, or horrified by the idea that you're just like punching this animal in the face. And he got a little more thoughtful about it at that time. But in the moment, he was just sort of presenting it as like, again, a, a father moment. Like I was so scared. You know, my you know, my son was doing this thing that I do. He wanted to be like me and ride horses. And he almost fell off a horse and got trampled. And so it wasn't until sort of later that he realized that it was his own fault, you know, uh, and was able to sort of express that in a sensitive way. In the moment, he told it as just kind of like a funny yet horrifying story all at the same time. Oh, wow. Um, it's just, it's a rare occasion when you get to have horse punching. You know, you, you know what it is? It was sort of like with him all the time, there was this like back and forth between uber masculine guy, you know what I mean? Like, and just... Um, talking about wanting to be in fights or punching things or, you know, the, the dominant alpha that you would imagine a giant seven-foot seven basketball. A 300-pound man. Right. Yeah. And then there were these moments of, like, regular guy, like just the two of us, you know, who are, you know, not so dissimilar in age, similar family structures, you know, just talking about sort of, like, what life is like. And I felt like the first him telling the story was, like, the first. And then talking about it later and, you know, discussing, like, actually it was my fault, you know, was the second. And I think that duality was very noticeable both in the entire visit and then hopefully in the piece as well. Well, Sam Borden, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, for doing the read and for chasing down Darko. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a pleasure to meet him and uh, an interesting experience for sure. For this story and more, you can go to ESPN.com slash double truck. That's all one word. This episode was created by the team at ESPN Audio and produced by Michael Rabier. The Double Truck team includes Ryan Graner, Rick Santos, Jenna Janovey, and Eric Neal.
We'll be back soon with more stories. I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.